0: Now, Jeremy and Anila have just welcomed their new baby girl, Juliet, which was great news. Now, others in the church are expecting, like uh, Luke and Liz. Has their baby come yet? Oh, we don't know. Okay. But they're still expecting, but it's going to be any moment now. There's Sam and Beck. There's uh, Andy and Chris, uh, Chrissy, and we're very excited about all this. For them, the big day, the new arrival, lies in the future. Now, if you were to ask them the due date, and I actually did ask Sam this past week, they'll tell you straight off, 22nd of August, I remember. They've rung the date in the calendar. They've marked it in their minds. They're counting down the months, the weeks, the days. They are focused on the future event. And so, what are they doing? Well, they're getting the gear from IKEA. They're making the nest ready, they're reading parenting books, they're eating nutritionally, they buying wonder suits, and they're stocking up on nappies. The baby is coming, and the future shapes the present. The not yet drives us in the now. Well, God wants you and I to focus on the future, on the big day ahead, the biggest day, the arrival of jesus now paul has taught us in this letter that followers of jesus are gospel partners and heavenly citizens who are called to stand firm that's chapter 4 verse 1 which really wraps up the central section of this letter that runs from chapter 1 verse 27 which also asks or calls them to stand firm that's a whole big chunk from chapter 1 verse 27 to chapter 4 verse 1. now standing firm is not inactivity It's standing in the sense that we are grounded on and in the gospel with a one-track gospel-mindedness. Now, Paul appeals for that, uh, and he uses this term as well, mature mindset in verse 15. Though it is a bit easily missed, the word in that verse for view or think is the same word used elsewhere in the letter for mind. So, verse 15 Could read, all of us who are mature should take a view of things, should be like-minded, like-minded. And if on some point you're other-minded, Paul expects God will change your mind. So Paul's concern, God's concern that we all have one mind, one-track gospel-mindedness. Now, let me just say, if you're here this morning, if you're checking out Jesus, if you're investigating Christianity, we're glad you're here. Uh, we'd love to hear what you're thinking and any questions you've got. Uh, but just so we're clear, just so we're above board, our hope and prayer is that God, through his word, will change your mind about Jesus. We don't want to push or pull, but we do hope you're persuaded. Now, there's only two big points this morning, and here's the first. God wants our minds to... Focus on the future, on the prize that's up ahead. You see, Paul kicks off here with a not yet, something that's in the future, verse 12. You can see there Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this or that I've already arrived at my goal. It's not yet. But what is the not yet? What is still coming? I haven't, verse 12, already obtained all this. I haven't already arrived at my goal. What's the this Paul hasn't obtained yet? What's the goal he hasn't arrived at? Now, understanding that is going to be key to understanding the whole passage. And the good news is, we don't have to guess, because good English comprehension skills help. Context. Read the other verses, and it becomes clear. God has just spoken about the this. This. Pick it up with me in verse 10, last week's passage. Paul declares in verse 10, I want to know Christ, to savour the Saviour. I want to know the power of His resurrection, to experience His life-giving power working in me. I want to participate in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that is, suffering for the sake of Christ. And so, and so, and here's, here's the this. Verse 11, here's the this. And so somehow... To attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the this. Which is not a wishy-washy somehow hope. This is a somehow in the sense of beyond comprehension, mind-blowing guarantee. Paul will attain to the resurrection from the dead. But he hasn't obtained that yet. Because Paul hasn't died and Christ hasn't returned. So the this lies in the future. The glorious resurrection from the dead at the return of Jesus. That's the goal or destination. It's up ahead, it's at the end of the road. And it's actually at the very heart of the apostolic preaching. In Acts chapter 4, we, and we could give many other examples, in Acts 4, we're told that the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus, what? The resurrection from the dead. That was what... On their lips. And Paul repeats the same point back in Philippians at the end of our our passage this morning in verse 20. Because he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will, will do what? Will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body." That's what the resurrection from the dead is all about. The death-conquering, risen Jesus will return, and he will raise us. He will take our frail and feeble bodies, ravished by decay and given over to death, and he will transform us. We'll be freed from the presence of sin and the consequences of sin, freed forever from physical decay and death. But we're not there yet. That's the destination. We're on the journey. And the mature-minded focus on the future. They look ahead to glory with an intense longing, aching for the end of suffering in this world and an aching for a glorious heavenly perfection. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In Christ, we will be made alive. The body that is so imperishable is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. And at the return of Christ, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. The perishable will clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the Immortality. I mean, think about it, our lowly bodies, transformed. You want that? I mean, you may be well aware of your own mortality just because of your own broken body, whether you suffer from injury or illness, or simply you're growing older. Your knees need replacing, you hobble along with a stick, you need help getting in and out of a car or a chair. Your body is wasting away. Truth be told, we're all wasting away. From the moment we're born, it's like we're a cut flower. We might look pretty for a while, but we're going to die. Or perhaps this morning you're aware of your own mortality because you're emotionally or mentally broken. You've suffered trauma and depression and anxiety are your daily experience. From time to time... Doctors have the tough job to deliver some hard news, some tough prognosis. We'll listen to the prognosis of the divine physician. Jesus says, I'm going to fix it all up. I'll make it better, I promise. I was wounded on the cross so you may be healed in glory. At my return, I will take your lowly, broken, scarred bodies and I will transform form them. You and I, we're going to receive renewed, top of the range, first class, perfect bodies, imperishable, immortal. They will be like his glorious body, as Paul says. Now last week we learned very helpfully, and if you didn't, go back and listen to it on uh, on Facebook live stream. You can link up there, but we learned that Mature-minded heavenly citizens savor the Savior. We rejoice in the Lord because we're confident of the finished work of Christ. Well, here this week, the mature-minded heavenly citizen yearns for glory, focused on the future, eyes fixed on the prize, gunning for the goal, longing for heaven, from which, verse 20, we eagerly await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who at his return will reward his people with the prize he won, the prize of the resurrection from the dead. Though, how can we be so sure of that future? Why is our future secure or guaranteed? Now because, and listen carefully to this, We will in the future rise from the dead because Jesus in the past rose from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest to come. Our future resurrection is guaranteed and secured by Jesus' past resurrection. That's why our future is secured. And on the back of that, Christ has grasped hold of us. Verse 12, I press on, Paul says, to take hold of that, the resurrection from the dead, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus saved me, owned me, took possession of me, so that I, in the future, will be raised to life. Makes me want to sing that old hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Jesus is mine, but only because he took hold of me. Only because he first loved me. Only because he died and paid my debt and won the prize for me. And because of that, I press on. Glory is guaranteed. Because Jesus died for me, and because Jesus took hold of me, and because, verse 14... We're told Paul presses on towards the goal to win the prize for which, for which, God has called him heavenwards in Christ Jesus. God effectually called me. I didn't put my hand up. I didn't earn enough brownie points. I didn't tell God, pick me, pick me. It's not because I'm lovable, but because He loves the unlovable that God called me. It's only on the basis of his steadfast loving kindness that God called me. Norman Clayton was born in 1963 in New York, the ninth of ten children. He was converted at the age of six, and uh, many years later he penned these words. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, But for eternity. Our future secured by the past. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because Jesus took hold of me, because Jesus called me home. Our future secured by the cross of Christ, the grasp of Christ, and the call of Christ. And so, on the basis of looking back to the cross and the empty tomb, we look forward to glory, the future. And that is the first big point. We've got to keep a clear focus on our secure future. First point, done. Though then we need to ask, what's the future got to do with the present? What difference, if any, will the then make to the now, to your and my everyday experience, existence? And the answer is, everything. Our society encourages us to invest in the present for the future, in the present for the future. So equities, properties, uh, superannuation, whatever you're told to do and you do, we are to invest now for a rainy day. And there's wisdom in that. Though in a real sense, Jesus' return Turns that mindset on its head. Because heavenly citizens are to invest the future in the present. And that's the second point. Invest the future in the present. Of which Paul, I might say, is a model example. You see, Knowing the future won't make for a cruisy Christianity, a sort of laid-back, low-cost, easy-going Christianity, Christianity light. No. Knowing the future makes for a sweaty Christianity. It translates into cost and commitment and effort. And so Paul speaks in verse 12 of pressing on, straining towards in verse 13. Press on towards verse 14. Words that are actually all athletic. Now, Marika and I and the family, we love the Winter Olympics. Um, I think I've said that before. We love the Summer Olympics. We love sport, full stop. And we really have enjoyed over the last couple of years, cheering on Jakara Antony, um, uh, or Emma McEwen or Usain Bolt. Just incredible athletes, athletes who give their all Every sinew, every muscle, straining, stretching, onward, forward, to the finish line. Now the words pressing and straining, they speak of strenuous and energetic activity. You see, this is a heart-pumping, sweat-dripping Christianity. Not in a sporty way, but in a spiritual way in our mindset, the desires and ambitions of our hearts, the work of our hands, the words of our mouths. Now, at the moment, we, uh, we started a good, good thing where we're encouraging everyone on a Sunday to speak to each other about one thing, one thing that hits home from God's word or one thing we're going to do as a result. Well, listen here to the one thing that is Paul the Apostle's one thing. Verse 13, he says, I've not yet attained or taken hold of the resurrection from the dead, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain towards what is ahead. I, verse 14, press on. I sweat towards the glorious gospel, the glorious goal, the prize of the resurrection from the dead. You know, like those racehorses who sort of wear blinkers, so that they'll run straight without distractions, or like athletes who fix their eyes on the prize so they persevere and press on. They give their best. They give their all. So, friends, we need to keep our eyes on the finish line. Don't shift our gaze. Don't be distracted. Forget what is behind. Strain toward what's ahead. You can't drive forward looking in the rearview mirror. You've got to look ahead. And that isn't a once off, because the phrases forgetting and straining here are in the present continuous tense. It's every day, all day, week in, week out. Paul's whole present is shaped by the future. Now, I'm always impressed by athletes, Olympic athletes. They're very disciplined. They rise early, they train hard, they eat carefully, and for four years they make sacrifices. You ask them why? What's all the work for? And they'll answer to stand on the podium, to wear a medal. The future shapes the present. You invest the future in the present. But their medal is by no means guaranteed. But ours is. Our prize is guaranteed because Jesus won. For us, when you look onto the horizon, when you look far into the future and you see the horizon, there's lots of things there. If you're out in nature or at the beach and you look out, there's lots of things. But Paul, his horizon is focused and dominated and absorbed by one thing jesus is going to return he will raise he there will be the resurrection from the dead and because of that paul is focused on the future and investing in that future in the present pressing on straining towards which is one way to live but for paul here in this passage there's two ways to live Two ways to live. On the one hand, verse 17, Paul urges, join together in following my example. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So Paul is encouraging them to emulate him, the apostles, and others, in being sweaty Christians, those who are future focused and invest the time, invest the future in the present. Uh, inasmuch as Paul, the apostles, and others follow Christ, in so much they are examples to follow. You'll remember last week Paul was the uh, was the religious rock star. He was the poster boy of Jewish religion, and we saw that unpacked in the early verses of chapter three, verse four, where he unpacked his religious CV: circumcised, member of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, true blue Jew. He knew the law, kept the law, was zealous in the extreme. And yet Paul left all that behind. He considered it garbage, rubbish, when compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He left it behind. He's now confident in Christ, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection. And that's where Paul's confidence rests. And so he can. Forget what is behind and strain toward what is ahead. Invest in the future in the present. Standing firm, mature-minded, suffering, serving, partnering the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Now, that is the one way to live. Living with Jesus as your king, living in the light of his return. But what's the other way to live? And this isn't easy for me to see. To say, because God only sees everyone in this world in two groups. You're either his friend or his enemy. In verse 18, we're told, I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ. Now that's a shocking term. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. But that's how God sees things. And just bear in mind, these guys were religious guys. They were respected. They were outwardly good. Inwardly, their hearts were hardened to Jesus. They peddled goodness, but not gospel. Their way of living denied the power of the cross. And so, verse 19, their end is damnation. Their God is selfish cravings. Their pride is actually their shame. Their mindset is worldly. It's set on earthly things. And so the truth be told is that good guys, good guys, go to hell. Because God says no one is good. But the good news is, is that bad guys, like me and us, bad guys who are forgiven are citizens of heaven. We're heading for glory. Because you see, either you trust in Jesus as King or you're not. Either you're living for Jesus or you're not. Either you're friends with God or you're enemies, denying Christ and Him crucified. So there it is two examples, two patterns, two ways to live. And the contrast can't be more stark and the consequences more different. Either resurrection to eternal life or an eternity. Of or a destiny of eternal destruction. Okay, two truths to take home focus on the future, invest the future in the present. Now, just for a moment, in your minds, in your minds, mentally, open up your calendar. We don't know the due date. We don't. But on the top of your calendar, would you write, Jesus will return? And write it every day or write it every month. Jesus will return. And then would you ring that date in your mind? Just ring it. Ring it in your heart and ring it in your head. Because on that day, the risen Jesus will raise our lowly, lifeless bodies and transform them. I have a wonderful mother-in-law. Truth be told, I really do. She's great. And I'm grateful to Anna Marie for passing on four things. Four things. You ready to hear them? Firstly, she passed on her good looks to her daughter. She did. Secondly, she passed on Jesus to her daughter. Much more important. Thirdly, she passed on her daughter to me. And from time to time, she passes on words of encouragement. She sent me WhatsApps or texts. Now, last week, she passed on something she had read. And I quote from Paul Kaufman, who says, Tomorrow's history has already been written. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. Tomorrow's history, the future, what's up ahead, it's written. It's written in stone. It's a done deal. The future is guaranteed. For we who know Jesus, glory is a given, the prize secure. So may I ask you and me, where are you in the race? Now, I take it that no one has finished, because you're here. You're still breathing. So there's really only two groups, only two ways to live. On the one hand, there are those who have never started the race. And then that might be you. You might be here checking out Jesus. And please keep coming. Now, my guess is, is that you're probably a really nice person. You're kind, sincere, you're good at least in your eyes, and perhaps many others. But until you trust Jesus, God sees you as his enemy. Because like all of us at one time, you're relying on being good to get to heaven, which simply ignores and rejects what Jesus did on the cross. The rest of us in the past have been where you are now, though at some point we were taken hold of by Jesus. And we would honestly love to see you too become God's friend. God forgives anyone. I know, he forgave me. So may I invite you this morning to join the race. God freely offers you a passport to heaven. No cost, at least no cost to you. Because Jesus paid the price. Dying for your sin so you don't have to. By simply trusting Jesus, we join God's family and enter the race. Trust Jesus, and you automatically share in the victory he won at the cross. You're forgiven, once and for all. Glory awaits. Because the benefits of knowing Jesus are literally out of this world. An eternity spent in perfect happiness, enjoying God, others, and the new creation. If you've never started, why not, why not trust Jesus today? Now, you could chat to someone here that you know knows Jesus, or chat to me, or chat to Hamish, chat to Sam. On the other hand this morning, there's another group. Those already running the race and heading for heaven. Now, if that's you, perhaps it would be good for each of us to honestly assess How are we doing when it comes to actively, strenuously investing? How does future glory shape our everyday priorities and activities? How does the then drive us in the now? Now, there's much in this church family that makes me want to follow your example as you follow Christ. Because among us, there's many Pauls and Timothys and Epaphrodituses, who are investing the future in the present. Serving practically, mentoring someone, teaching the Bible in schools or at home, praying fervently, working or studying with integrity and honesty, loving the unloved, giving reason for hope, showing hospitality, bearing others' burdens, sharing Jesus and his love. Invest in the future in the present. Though perhaps, and I don't presume to know, perhaps you've stopped straining and you're struggling. Amidst the bright lights of the world, you've been distracted. In some way, however big or small, you've taken a detour. Worldly ambitions and worldly possessions, they've caught your eye and taken you off track. Maybe you've grown weary and enthusiasm has waned. Maybe you've stumbled and fell and you're on the sidelines. Immersed in the world and seemingly detached from Jesus. If that's you, if that's any of us, may God gently rebuke and encourage us to get back in the race. Don't look back at your own efforts or look around and be distracted. Look back to the cross. Look to Jesus. And on that basis, look forward to this. The goal, the prize, the destiny, our future. The glorious resurrection from the dead. Let that fill our horizon. So that we look forward and invest the future in the present. So that we press on. Because the prize awaits. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone. But for eternity.